What's up, horror hounds? Welcome to Chop Talk, a comprehensive look at 80s horror. I am your host, Dave, and I have the the holy trinity of Chop Talk here with me today. I got Mr. Kurt Morrison. How you doing, buddy? I'm good, my brother. Happy to be here again. Episode 3, folks, Chop Talk on the block. And Mr. Jacques Renault. How you doing today, buddy? I'm doing good. I was saying earlier that uh, I'm beginning to think this might just be a John Carpenter podcast and not all 80s horror because this will now be the second and not the last Carpenter movie we cover. But I was excited to watch this for the first time. And uh, some yeah, I certainly had some uh, <laughs> differing opinions. Yeah, so, some split opinions on it. Definitely some stuff I like, some stuff not so much. But I'm really excited. Awesome. To talk yeah, so we are too. covering Prince of Darkness. On its 45th anniversary, which is very exciting because this is one of John Carpenter's lesser seen films. There's a lot of folks that I've spoken to that, especially in preparation, that were actually excited to listen to the podcast because they're like, oh, that's not one I've seen. Um, And some haven't even heard of it. And it kind of shows how little people know about this film. It kind of goes in line with me with In the Mouth of Madness, another John Carpenter movie from the 90s that I really do like. Um, as I call it, the diss track mm-hmm. to Stephen King. Um, but yeah, it's it's his. As we get to the late '80s and early '90s, people will, seem to not know as much Carpenter. But let's jump right into it with Steve Christie's Campfire, where we talk about our first viewing of uh, of Prince of Darkness. And I'm going to start off with Kurt. Uh, it's your pick of the month. I have a feeling yeah. VHS covers are going to come into play again. Oh, well, perhaps, my good sir, perhaps. Um, first time I saw this film, uh, again, we, we discussed on not only the first episode, but the second episode, VHS covers. And, uh, you know, they were a pivotal, uh, almost yes. like a uh, piece of art for, for a lot of films, especially a lot of horror, uh, horror films in the uh, 80s. And I remember this one standing out again with this kind of like demon ghost-like figure kind of coming out of it. Um, and it was one of those one of these VHS covers that really kind of stood out. Uh, the second that you'd walk down the uh, the aisle at uh, the local blockbuster video store, um, I can I was probably about thirteen or fourteen the first time I seen it. I have not watched this movie, and I, if I do the backwards math here, I haven't watched this probably in at least seventeen or eighteen <laughs> years. Uh, I had very fond memories of this the first time I saw it, and again, again, I, I said prior, I think it might have been the company that I kept, but I thought that this was like overly scary. Um, I had a really good time watching this. I have to admit. Uh, again, it's one of his lesser known films. Uh, and this is also one of the reasons why I wanted to do an episode on it with you there, Davey. Uh, but yeah, Prince of Darkness, it's, um, yeah, we'll call that's it kind of, of that's kind of where I'm at Let's too. Put it that way. Um, yeah, yeah, go ahead, Jackie. Go Jack. ahead. Yeah. Uh, so this is only my fourth Carpenter movie. And like you guys said, it's in the middle of the pack, but for the four that I've seen, it's certainly at the bottom considering I've seen more of his like more popular movies but um he definitely takes it back to an older time of horror movies and it's unlike anything that he's done as well as really many people beforehand it's almost it kind of feels something more along the lines of like the exorcist in terms of like dealing with like themes that people are trying to comprehend but might not necessarily be able to um and it also doesn't exactly escalate the way that i I thought it would for a John Carpenter movie because, like, you know, with closer to the end of Halloween, it begins to ramp it up. Same thing with The Thing. This one, not so much. Um, I, I did have some issues with the pacing in general, first off. And I, I, I wanted to bring it up before someone else does. 
why are the opening credits <laughs> about ten minutes of the movie? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I was, I was, I was text, I, I was like talking to you a little bit, but like during the opening credits, and I just kept like watching the movie. And then, like, the credits would come back and be like, wait, oh, they're not done yet? Okay. <laughs> and then they just keep going away, and I keep forgetting that they're still going on. It would keep coming back, and I was like, all right. And I finally looked at the time, and it was like 10 minutes. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, I definitely have more thoughts uh, about the characters individually. We'll get more into those whenever we get to, um, whenever we get to Elm Street's kids. But, yeah, I definitely had a good time with this, but I will say it's easily the weakest yeah, of the four. Yeah, back on so both far. you guys, I agree 1,000%. I think it's a very entertaining movie, but it's definitely on the lesser end of the Carpenter run. Um, my first time watching it was actually very interesting. So I always knew it existed because of the VHS covers at, at Blockbuster. It always it was in the Carpenter section with a thing, with Halloween, so on and so forth. But then, blo- then video started just disappeared for me on that one. And we got to the DVD era, and then I still did not see it. So back in 2017, I actually met John Carpenter, and it was during a uh, John Carpenter concert. And um, uh, uh, here's a hint for anyone that wants to meet John Carpenter. Do not talk about his movies. Talk about video games and sports. Loves basketball. So that's, <laughs> a, that's a good focus of conversation. But uh, during the concert, he played the score to to prince of darkness and i'm like oh my, my man alan Howworth came to play again uh, so i immediately <laughs> jumped into looking for it but then it was not streaming anywhere because shutter wasn't around back then so covid hit and i decided to finally try to do my best to find it and then i happened to find it that shutter was around and shutter had it so i saw it and i immediately had like very interesting ideas that the movie yes it's entertaining but i think it's like an interesting dissection of the separation of church and science okay great so we're i'm glad we're kind of on the same boat to start man i'm glued at these two like entities and the things that they discuss in this and it's like i'd like this is my shit like i love this type of stuff this is the stuff type of stuff that i go down a youtube rabbit hole on mm-hmm. with the science and the quantum physics and so on and so forth continue along yeah I'm so really i, I immediately put that into into context as like are, the, are these the themes yeah. of the movie what is it really trying to say mm-hmm. are, is it also are we looking at the the character of priest him being understanding and more open to the idea of science the the, the relationships that are that are going on mm-hmm. but i also have a question that i want to point to you guys would you sign up with experiment to, for some of these experiments without knowing the context <laughs> Jack no. is shaking his head. Nope. <laughs> that's just one of the common like yeah. like horror cliches that it's just like you you would you would never in real life. So but no, I, I would definitely like ask for like like a descriptive form. Like we wouldn't need we like we wouldn't take a field trip to like the museum like right down the street without getting a form of every little detail. So come on. Uh um, my but, answer would be 20 to, 20 to 25 yeah. year old Kurt, hundred percent. Sign me up. 33 going on 34 now and into the future. Nah, it's, it's, it's probably going to be like a, 
you got to give me at least three weeks time and tell me exactly what I, you're doing I, I, and why I, we're I, going to a church for 48 hours. So I won't step into a church be, to begin with. So to get me there for 48 hours is hard enough. So I, I will say the, uh, the incentive of getting a boost on your grades was certainly a really good. Yeah, yep, that is true. Now that I'm thinking about it too. Um, uh, so yeah, that pretty much wraps up our general thoughts on the first view of the film. Let's right jump into the Haddonfield Herald where we look at, some of the production of the film. Interesting subtext that I did in my research on here. Uh, Carpenter views this film, The Thing, and In the Mouth of Madness, and he calls it his Apocalypse Trilogy, which, after watching all three of these films, it kind of makes sense, especially when you get to In the Mouth of Madness, with uh, which, Jack, if you ever get to it, I'm very curious to your thoughts. Uh, it, it It's a wild one. <laughs> I think we should do I'd a be down. So just for that, because for you and I, yep. I think it'll be a great rewatchable. For Jack, I think yeah. it goes yep. off the fucking yep. deep end yep. mentally. I, show, I remember, <laughs> so. and this is completely off topic in terms of like in the Prince of Darkness, but more in the Mouth yeah. of Madness. Uh, last year, I finally convinced my wife to watch it with me. And I'm excited. Oh, wow. I'm so she fucking excited. I'm like, let's fucking go. There's no way in hell she doesn't like it. We're like 40 minutes in of this like 90 minute movie and I look over. She could not divorce me quicker. <laughs> I was sitting there and I'm like, oh, so what do you think? And she's like, you really like this movie? I'm like, fucking, yes, I do. This movie's fucking great. And she, I, yeah. I know. She's like, yeah. she didn't, she thought the ending was okay. If, but that's basically her saying, never show me this again. I think I think our boy Jack I think our boy Jack will think a little differently. I think he'll he'll definitely dig the Stephen King uh, diss tracks that were being placed yeah. throughout the movie. I, I, I I've been hearing a lot about it since I've been doing all the research because it's a part of the Apocalypse trilogy. So I think I'm gonna and have shout to out at some to, point. But I also oh, need to get the basket yes. case. So. <laughs> Brain damage. Um, and shout out, shout out to our buddy Helmer, who considers this in the mouth of madness, John Carpenter's best film. I mean, I don't know what cocaine he's on. Maybe some, maybe some 1980s old cocaine. Oh wait, is that? That's a legit opinion. That's a legit opinion. Yeah, he said it. I no, I recommended it to him, and he's like, I think this may be my favorite Carpenter film. Yeah, so that. I've been meaning to talk to you guys about that. Uh, our formation of the Wolf Pack is actually going to be please, a virtual please intervention do that. for Helmer, for all for all the drugs that he's clearly please been do that. doing. Uh, but yeah, more more on the production of the film. Prince of Darkness was shot in L.A. in 30 days. Carpenter became inspired while researching theoretical physics and, and uh, atomic theory. He recalled, "I thought it would be interesting to create some sort of ultimate evil and combine it in the notion of matter and antimatter. This idea, which would eventually develop into the screenplay for the film." was the first of the multi-picture deal with Alive Pictures, where Carpenter was allocated $3 million per picture and complete creative control. Something that, as we know from his other films, Carpenter is very keen on having creative control of his films. Um, Carpenter wrote the screenplay, but was credited as Martin Quartermass, which along with the name of Professor Byrick's Institution, New University, was an homage to British film and television writer Nigel Neal, and his best-known character, Bernard Quartermass. Uh, theories about the film, and I'm very curious to what you thought. It's not really about the uh, about the production, but more out of 
some anal- other analyzation, especially after we talked about the separation of, of religion of church and science. Their film critic John John Kenneth Moyer suggests that Prince of Darkness serves as a parable for the AIDS epidemic, which was. Uh, at its peak during the time of the film, as you see during the film, demonic possession is depicted as something that is transmitted like a uh, a disease via fluid passed between people. He goes on to know a number of the references to homosexuality in the film, namely regarding the character of Walter, who makes several statements implying that he is gay. So I I think that's a bit of a stretch, but I wanted to see what you guys think. A little bit. A little bit. Jack, your thoughts? I- I I think I mean it, it could be a stretch, but I mean, Carpenter certainly isn't one to not have themes like that in his movies. I mean, we just talked about uh, They Live, which also deals with a certain type of theme that I could see being fit into his movies. And I mean, it's certainly it's certainly possible, but I feel like with him, we probably it probably would have been like in his thesis if that was like his mentality with making the movie, but. It's certainly an interesting I agree. way to look. Kurt, any thoughts? For sure. Yeah, I think uh, at the height of, of such a uh, pivotal topic of the 1980s, it's easy. And again, I think this is from uh, someone who's a little bit overcritical. If you look at that gentleman's other reviews of other movies, uh, it's easy to to say that this is again just like some mm-hmm. uh, visual allegory for for the AIDS epidemic. Um, I think it's a stretch, but but I understand where he's coming from. It's neither. I would neither argue it nor defend it. Um, and I think Jack just said it best, right? Like, I mean, we've got movies like They Live, even uh, The Thing, or They Live. Uh, pardon me for once. I wrote this down in my notes here. Give me one second. One of his other movies. Um, like, even, again, like like Starman. Like, there's all of these references, or at least allegories, to, like, topics of the 1980s that, again, he just uses his films to be a commentary on. Uh and I said this last week when we did the uh, the other episode for for They Live, like what better mm-hmm. media or medium to yeah, do it? Yeah, I agree one thousand percent. So, so by the way, Starman, so. thumbs up and thumbs down, or thumbs in the middle. Oh God. Okay, I'm a, all right. Thumbs in the middle. Thumbs in the middle. Bridget, Bridges is my guy. Yeah, we're on the same boat. Uh, Jack, I think you may like Starman. <laughs> it's his. It's essentially. His, would you call it his ET? His adult ET. Yeah, that's a safe. That's a safe way. Of, I'm not. Of it. I'm that's, not a big fan of it. Though. Remind you, Jeff Bridges got an Oscar nomination for it, Jeff or Jack. So there, there's a lot, a lot to okay. think about going into it. Bridges gets an Oscar nomination for it in a in a relatively weak year, nevertheless. But like, it's good, man. He holds. Well, year, what year I did, believe did 1984. Yeah. Yeah, that was um, a weak year. Okay. But yeah, the movie <laughs> the movie was released on October twenty third, nineteen eighty seven, to a budget of three million dollars and made fourteen point one million. So another success for Carpenter. Uh, let's go to one of my favorite seg- segments of the of the podcast is uh, Howard's School of Sound. The the I, I I think we're gonna have a differing opinion on compared to last last month. Um, so the the score was composed by Alan Howard and John Carpenter. Uh, Carpenter and Howarth completed the score in, in four to five weeks. Uh, he stated, all my scores are basically improvised. He watches scenes on the TV set and creates the themes on the spot using 24-track recorder, linked to the film and layers in the sounds. Let's just start off with Jack here, because I know he's a big score guy like us. What do you think of the score? Yeah. yeah um, we, we had already talked about They Live and how 
honestly, I thought that score was a little underwhelming because it was essentially the same music throughout the whole movie. This one was a lot more detailed. Um, it shows, once again, why Carpenter and uh, Borat are such a really good combo. Um, I'm still yet to get to their Magnum Halloween Magnum three claim. Yeah. Um, yes. Ho- Halloween three. Well, now, all right. Let me let me rephrase that. Uh, Howard's not Carpenter. Halloween is Carpenter's Magnum Opus, but yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, but no, I thought it was really. I, I, I'm a big fan of like I, I was in choir, so I'm a big fan of classical music. So like anything with like angelic voices, like I'm all here for. But then they also balance it out with like the typical like sinister tone that you would expect from one of their movies. So I thought the score was really good and without question, one of the highlights of the movies for me, if, if not the number Kurt, one highlight. What about you? So I loved it. Jack, Jack and um, just as, as you can't give me a tidbit of such information without at least uh, allowing me to hear <laughs> yes. such a, an angelic voice in your own. Cause you did say that you <laughs> oh, were in the okay. choir. So no, I mean, I, I all the not, listeners are probably thinking the same thing I did. So, We'll, we'll count you in. Ready? Three, Four. two, one. <laughs> <laughs> or as my dance teacher last night. Listen, you just set, you just set up a segment in July that I'm going to call you back on. I, I got yep. the saxophone ready for you, buddy. <laughs> okay, okay, I'll give you the address. Uh, but, but yeah, no, I thought the soundtrack was incredible certainly yeah. i definitely liked it a lot more than they lived that's for sure i i echo that i echo that it's again it's neither uh, middle of the pack same thing I, I think i said about the the film as a, as a whole it's it's not uh top tier carpenter and horworth um but it's, it's it's definitely uh a notch above they live they lives repetitiveness got mm, on I my nerves you. by the end of that film as this film starts to climax and we'll get to that <laughs> the last 30 minutes of this film are on a whole other spectrum the music amplifies the the um, magnitude of what's happening and actually i actually really enjoyed it I, it, it plays a pivotal role and i i watched this in the middle of the afternoon with all the blinds closed like it actually plays a very pivotal role in intensifying the the scenes and essentially the 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 third act and, and how chaotic i, it gets. I, I thought I'm it was glad that you mentioned moments. that Kurt, because i literally in my notes put this score slaps when it hits the climax. <laughs> uh, I I do agree with you guys. I think it's I think it's an underrated gem in terms of their scores because it is middle of the pack, but it's so much better than a lot of people give it credit for. Also, I I'm I'm pretty sure that Kurt probably peeped this, but did you notice they sample Christine a little bit in the score? Yeah. Oh no! Did it I? starts oh, off. Oh wow! With the Good to hear, buddy. Dun, 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 and it stops there and then it picks up to another piece of music but it pretty much teases a christine score which uh jack that's another elite elite score yeah okay, okay. Uh, I say elite I, oh carpenter. no that's in my top five carpenter films yeah that's easy yeah okay Okay. Yeah, yeah, I'd say yeah, it's a five six it's, for me. It's five six good stuff. Yeah, but um, yeah. So. but yeah, like I agree with everything you guys said. It's really it's really used well throughout the film, and it's actually one of those scores that I actually sit and can just bump some of the tracks on there. I put on at work when I'm doing some some research or just doing anything with work, and I just let it bump. It's, it's I really really enjoy it. Um, but. <laughs> 
now we're on to probably my favorite section every every month that we do this because I just I'm very curious to what you guys think of all these characters. Uh, this time we have a whole bunch of characters. I don't. Th- I, I wonder if we're going to actually oh, yeah. have something to say for all of them. So here we go with Elm Street's kids. Um, there's a lot of people in this movie, and Jack actually mentioned how little <laughs> notes he has for some of these. Um, I got a. I guess we can start off with the the lead, Donald Pleasance. Uh, this is Pleasance's third film with John Carpenter, um, and his last film with John Carpenter. And sim- similar to They Live and Nada, John, uh, Donald Pleasance is just known as Priest in this movie. Um, what I have in my notes here is uh, I think the even though we haven't talked about him yet, I think the the um, the chemistry between Priest and Howard throughout the film, I think it's the most crucial aspect of it that kind of focuses on that that duality of church and science. I think I think we well have said. so well many uh, conversations, especially now in today's society, where you have one side with religion and one side with science, and they can't seem to come into agreement about anything. And this is a movie that shows two men of different one of faith one of science that can say you know what i see your side you see my side let's just try to put those sides together to try to stop this evil and i think the i think Ple- pleasance is fantastic but what can you say you know pleasance is one of one of the all-time great character actors that a lot of people outside of halloween don't know a lot of the stuff that he's done i mean he literally was one of the first bond villains and a lot of people don't know that so yeah uh, that's my thoughts on priests kurt yeah. what about you yeah, man. I think um, Donald Pleasance always brings some sort of gravitas, especially in like the later on part of his career. Of like whatever he's again, for God's sakes, uh, uh, Doctor Loomis and um, uh, Halloween. Sorry, my brain turned off for a second there. Um, I th- I think that in this, although not mm-hmm. even a boatload to work with, his relationship with with Doctor uh, or sorry, not Doctor, sorry, Professor Howard. It is again, like you said, that kind of pivotal point where it brings to light both aspects of both the science and religion. That's the stuff that kept me grounded. Like, there's a lot of shit in between that's very slow and like doesn't work well yeah. with like, the zombies and like the people outside and then them jumping down out the window and then racing back up. There's a lot that doesn't work, but when it's them two in a room together talking, or even when they start to get, and we'll get to the other characters, obviously, like Brian and Catherine and Walter and so on and so forth. Um, priests just kind of uh, understanding of like how severe of a situation they've put themselves in uh, does ground it. And, and I think he does a great job as always. I mean, for God's sakes, as you said, it's Donald Pleasance. There's not much that he's ever done wrong, let alone if he's done anything wrong. Take it away. So Jack. Yeah. I mean that, that was just an instant uh, green flag for the movie. As soon as I saw his name on the cast okay. list, um, yeah, I mean, it's just another movie of him mm. killing the monologue game. Uh, yeah. much anytime, anytime he speaks, it's just full-on riveting. Um, and you, you kind of touched on it a little bit, but he's really good at bringing uh, gravity and leveling like a crazy concept or yep. situation down to earth. And he also does the same thing with his dialogue, almost. like uh, One of my favorite lines in Halloween was uh, he's talking to the sheriff, and it's his uh, the blackest eyes. Yeah. The devil's eyes, like that's a line that I don't. I don't think that line should really work, but it, it just works with his yeah. delivery. Um, and, and I mean, his character in this movie is also just kind of similar to Loomis in general, of him like trying to warn these people about the full-on scale of the situation that they're in. And 
having a hard time doing it, but at the same time, like you guys were talking about, being able to see levelly with somebody with a different perspective and, on you. So absolutely. yeah, I thought he was he was and great. similar fashion to Halloween. No one listens to him. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> nobody, Next nobody up is Victor Wong, who plays so. Professor Howard. Um <laughs> I I do want to bring up a specific role in his career that the homie Kurt is going to know. And it's not a horror movie. It's not even in the 1980s. <laughs> nope. Oh, it's yes. To our Daniel LaRusso and Mr. Miyagi up. were not my karate teachers. <laughs> it is Victor <laughs> Wong <laughs> in the classic trilogy, yeah. Three Ninjas. God, Jack, right. you... Yeah, you have Jack. Do you have any idea what we're talking about right I, now? I, so I, I was going through his letterbox page before we got on here, and I was kind of—I was thinking to myself, I was like, he's kind of a Joe Spinell of his time. Uh, but yeah, I saw one of the Three Ninjas posters, and I was just like, oh, that looks interesting. His name is Grandpa Grandpa Dude, Mori Tanaka. It was his name in Three Ninjas. Yes. Yep. And you don't understand yep. how important oh, the film Three Ninjas is to Dave and I. I, I, I'm not. A, that's why everybody talks about Cobra Kai. Cobra Kai is fine. Okay, only seen the first Karate Kid movie. Couldn't give a shit. They make a <laughs> Three Ninjas Netflix movie or a Netflix series. I'm the first guy to watch and it. I'll, and I don't know about Kurt, but I will be completely so. honest with you. I saw Three Ninjas before I even saw um, the Karate Kid. Mm-hmm. Same. Sick, yes. VH, sick yeah. VHS cover. Absolutely. You you pretty much had them. Yeah. Um, he was a sick grandpa because he actually had him do the uh, Terry Silver destroying a dummy, and he and these <laughs> these were children, Jack. Like I like the the youngest <laughs> is named Tum Tum, and he's like seven years old. Yeah, man. And and um, you'll never watch that movie and never think Rocky does love Emily. Just just le- just letting you know that. Uh, but outside of that, he is well known for uh, Best Picture winner, The Last Emperor. Uh, he's also known for Big Trouble in Little China, uh, Sh- Shanghai Surprise, The Golden Child. Uh, don't outside of the Three Ninjas, oh, the Joy Luck Club. Outside of the Three Ninjas movies, after that, I haven't seen much of his. I've never seen Seven Years in Tibet, so that's not something I could touch on. But uh, him in this movie, I I I, I, I like him. I mentioned, like I mentioned before, I do love the chemistry between him and and Pleasance. But I gotta say, I kind of think that I liked his Egg Shen more in Big Trouble. Than I do with him here, uh, Kurt. What do you think? Yeah, I think he's also given a little bit more to work with as the as the antagonist of that film. Um, again, the things that I think bring out how important he is to this, and I, and I, I mean important in the sense of like just getting the movie going along is, is his back and forth with Donald Pleasance, right? Like with priests, because all the other interactions that he has with all the other characters are yeah. introductions and then fluff offs. And it's like, Oh, okay. Like we don't, we don't need him to have any quality time or any exposition with these other characters. It's the man of science. It's the man of church and them actually not going at it. And like you said, like a, a rude way, them having conversations about it. And like, it's, it's very interesting man, to see these two guys in, in, the twilight of their career to be honest um and uh yeah again and, and landing some like really really great dialogue again written by uh by carpenter so jack what do you think along. yeah what yeah what you just said kurt was really um 
one of my biggest issues with the movie overall is that most of like what happens in the movie happens between uh, Victor Wong and Donald Pleasance and that when it's like him and his students, like not a whole lot is going on. It's just like getting us to where we need to go for those other two guys to do their thing. Not- so yeah. when, when he was doing when he was doing the stuff with Donald Pleasance, it was freaking awesome. But like you said, when it's just him with all the students, it became hard to pay attention. It was very, it was, it was very stop go in terms of. Uh, yeah, I agree. For the movie for me, now, least. now we I get agree. to my problem. I agree with that. The, this man, oh. it's 1987. It's 1987. Okay, yeah, here we go. We're living in a world where Tom Atkins is alive and well. Why is Jameson Parker <laughs> playing Brian Marshall and and? As I call him, poor man's Tom Atkins. One his stash <laughs> budgetary okay. reasons. You David. can you can budgetary afford reasons. Tom Atkins. It's it's I I the first thing I noticed when I saw this movie, I'm like, bro, your stash is too goddamn long. Tom Atkins' stash is. You're okay. gonna say you yeah. you agree, Jack? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say name a worse one from the '80s. That was my first thought. I. I saw the mustache and I instantly started thinking. I was like, "What is a worse mustache than this?" From this I, I immediately, because I immediately thought, I'm like, "Yo, at this point, just grow the goatee, bud. Just let it just just keep it going. Just keep it going." Um, <laughs> yeah, I I'll bet you a hundred dollars. The reason why Atkins is not signed on in this movie is because he's doing oh, lethal weapon. Okay, I'm looking at his mind. filmography right now. And you and I'm looking yeah, at the release dates of both of them. There's only one fucking plausible answer as to why I is this movie. All right, never mind. Lethal, lethal weapon. weapon was probably the right so, choice for Tom. Oh my god. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm, <laughs> plus I, plus I'm definitely better with that than having Jameson Parker in can you lethal imagine, weapon. So can you imagine the turnaround I'll take there? That, I'll uh, take that I'll trade. Of this, I've actually only seen him in episodes of Murder She Wrote. He did a lot of television. He was on Magnum <laughs> PI. Uh, I mentioned Murder She Wrote and uh, Jag. If you guys remember that show from the early 2000s, and yeah, oh my god, yeah, Catherine uh, and uh, everyone's favorite Ranger, no. Walker Texas Ranger, in uh, 1996, he had one episode of there. But yeah, I think his character was extremely bland. I don't think there was anything to him. I don't. <laughs> if he's trying to evoke the charisma of Tom Atkins, he fails miserably. I think this guy has the charisma of a piece <laughs> of paper. I'd rather watch paint dry than watch him act. Um. Yeah, and I think I think I said everything I needed to say about this guy, Jack. What do you got here? Yeah. So, well, for starters, this opening scene of him trying to oh, yeah. court Catherine Danford. Oh wow! That just like made him so hard to enjoy the rest of the movie because it was what is he saying? It's like confirmed sexist <laughs> and proud of it. Like op- <laughs> opening line of this opening line of the century, bro. Like, come on. Um, but yeah I, I I just thought both of the leads uh, Catherine Danforth gets a bit more leeway because I actually I, I, I didn't have any like negative opinions about her but Jameson Parker I was just like man there's literally no one else available so <laughs> he's pretty eye-rollingly bad I'd say that um, of any of our like I'll say like our five leads by five I mean like Donald Pleasance, Victor Wong, uh, him, Lisa Blount. Well, Ka- sorry, Catherine, and then and then who's the, who's Dennis, the, oh yeah. Walter. So uh, Dennis, yeah, Dennis Sun. Um, you said it best. Like it's like watching paint dry when it comes to charisma. Like he just doesn't have any. And even 
<laughs> near the climax of the movie, when he goes out and uh, starts fighting the uh, big black yeah. fellow whose whose throat got slit. It's the most unbelievably unheroic like action scene <laughs> that's ever been in a Carpenter movie. <laughs> <laughs> like the grunting and like the like trying to be like a Kurt Russell type, like oh, and like nah, man, I this is just this ain't working for you, James. And let's just get you going. I wonder buddy. if let's they tried the to get Kurt so, for this. Well, uh, maybe. I mean, maybe. I mean, yeah, it, it's always something you need to take into account with Carpenter. It's like, oh, Carp or Kurt Russell's yeah. not Well, he might have been. Um, Who would he have been? Moving on yeah. to or the next one, since you mentioned her uh, before, Jack. Uh, Lisa Blunt as Catherine Danforth. Uh, what What are your thoughts on her? Yeah. I I mean I don't have any like I don't have many thoughts. That was I, I thought both of the leads like weren't really Agreed. like noteworthy, but she at least was like good enough to where like I didn't need I didn't I wasn't finding issues with her performance and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Whereas I was for Jameson Parker, but. I thought she was fine. Did, did what she needed to do. Just pretty much and, about the bare minimum. And fun fact say, about so. uh, her, she yeah. is an Academy Award winner, my friends. Yep. Academy Award oh, really? for Best what? Live Action Short mm-hmm. in 2001 for The Accountant. That's true. That's true. Mm-hmm. Sadly passed away in 2010. Yes. Sadly passed away in 2010. Just surprised to read that. So... From an autoimmune uh, potential autoimmune disease, so very sad stuff. So only fifty-three years old, too young. Kids take every day. Don't take it for granted. God damn it. So continuing on, Lisa Blunt. Um, she she does the best that she, she's given, right? Like I mean, um, she's better than than uh, yep. Jameson, that's for sure. Uh, but but it was a painfully awkward first ten minutes of the movie. While the while the credits are still going on, if I remember correctly, where like it's like him as you said trying to court her and like kind of being a little bit rapey um but at the same time when like being like a chauvinistic pig and it was like oh wow this works because then the next scene he's like awkwardly on top of her mind you, okay and hold on i'm gonna bring something up he the next morning she wakes up and he kind of like slides half of his buddy on top of her did nobody realize that he still had a scalding hot cup of coffee <laughs> in his left hand right beside his skull? And then he starts making out with her. And I was like, bud, hey, if you're going to go to second base in the morning, at least put your coffee down before your woman gets a second degree burn. So anyways, that was like one of those weird like, oh, oh, I guess uh, I guess nobody caught that in uh, post-production. Yeah. And so, then uh, to bring some other stuff that she did, she was nominated for a Golden Globe uh, for her portrayal in, in an officer and a gentleman. Now we get to Dennis Dune as Walter Fong. Listen, I have one. I again, similar to not as not as negative as I was for Jameson Parker, but I do only have one note um, on uh, on Walter on the character of Walter Fong. His choice of button downs are quite elite. Agreed. Like I feel, I feel like, I feel like he yeah. there's a prequel out there somewhere where he worked for Miami Vice intern program. um yeah man i mean if that was his let me put this if if there was no uh costume design department and that's just his like almost every day pardon me every day day day-to-day type of uh clothing bravo sir bravo and and your uh your post humusly is that that the term that it's said yes 
Posthumously. Posthumously. After he's passed. Yes. Thank you. Yes. Okay. Posthumously. Thank you, sir. Thank you. So again, English, not my my strong <laughs> um, suit, gentlemen. And I so. do, I do want to um, add also someone else that was in Big Trouble in Little China, and I l- adored him in Big Trouble in Little China. Uh, Jack, do you have any thoughts? Uh, yeah, I thought he was. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I think another issue with the characters in general was really just I felt like there were so many of them, and like when you would have people die, like new ones would come up who had little mm-hmm. development, and they would all of a sudden have a shitload of screen time, and it's just like, who's this guy? <laughs> uh, so. Yeah, I think it was just the fast cutting or just the constant cutting during the opening credits uh, all throughout the first like hour of the movie between all the different characters really hindered my ability to get behind and uh, root for these characters. That's for sure. And then also, um, not only was he in uh, Big Trouble with China, oh, the he last was also in, uh, yes, he was also in The Last Emperor, too. Now, yeah, now when we both get in it. when we. Oh, yeah, yeah go ahead. Oh, can I? Can I bring up two things here? Sorry, no, no, go we, ahead. Go ahead. Switching sections here because I, I got two things. Number one, Peter Jason <laughs> as Doctor Leahy shows up on screen, and I'm having lunch, and I go, "Holy fuck, that's Meatloaf!" <laughs> I didn't know Meatloaf was in this movie, and I went, <laughs> and I literally went to the film's Wikipedia, and I was like, "Fuck!" I was like, "That's not Meatloaf. Who the hell's who the hell's Peter Jason?" And Peter Jason, ladies and gentlemen, uh, is 77 years old, still alive. Peter. <laughs> Peter Jason is an actor uh, who's been in a lot of stuff here. Uh, ironically enough, hold on, let me pull it up real quick here. I, I had a good run in the 90s. Let's go. Ready for this? Hunt for Red October, Arachnophobia, Marked for Death, and then Into the Mouth of Madness. So there, there's there's quite the, the, the quad pod of uh, 90s action and horror. Uh, but I genuinely thought that I was looking at fucking Meatloaf when the, when he came on the, on the screen. Uh, and then lastly, yo, my guy. I've talked uh, not in much detail about this in, in past episodes, uh, but I am I am sober um, uh, proudly. Oh, uh, I was waiting Alice for you. Cooper yep, let's go. A, uh, mm. my, my my guy Alice Cooper, man. You know, I mean, quintessential hard rock uh, god. Music has never been like a big thing of mine, but I've read Alice Cooper's uh, memoir and basically the story of how he got sober. Fucking fantastic read to see him pop up. And then literally like lose my mind when when he came on my television uh, was like my feel good moment for this. I'm a giant Alice Cooper fan, uh, so it was nice to unexpected. Yeah, he he was. Um, so I have Cross. some notes on it, but I feel like they could have done a little bit more with someone as charismatic yeah. as Alice Cooper instead of him just walking <laughs> for about an hour and a half. Jack, you have any comments on that? Yeah, I was gonna say we we need to give credit to uh, Shep Gordon, who was one of the producers of uh, the movie, and he was also Alice Cooper's manager, and so that was how they were able to get that uh, tie over. And Shep Gordon also, uh, I think he produced some Wes Craven I movies, believe so. uh, one or two of them, I think. Uh, so I yeah, correct. But 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 yeah, we got we definitely got to give a round of applause. I, I guess my Alice I guess my last question, you guys, before we move on. Is there anyone else that you want to talk about character wise? Because I got nothing left. I have no I have zero notes on any of these other people. No, nah, man. The well is pretty dry. <laughs> Alrighty. So let's move on to Grundlefly's yeah. Cocoon, where we talk about the special effects of the film. Uh I have specifically in my note, I think Kelly's makeup during her metamorphosis. I think that's like that's the top that's the top in the movie, I think. Yes. Yeah. The standout. 
yeah. the standout of this. So, mm-hmm. Dave, you said it when we were – well, I, we both echoed it when we first kind of started in our, our first section there. The last 30 minutes of this film mm-hmm. redeem all the slowness of the first 60, and it's when the practical effects yep. – and the special effects go from zero to like 15 that like really, really, really stand out in this film. Uh, continue on, please. I, I'm yeah, really I, excited I agree 1000%. Like I Kelly think that's essentially it felt like Carpenter was like, man, we we were slowed up for a good amount of time. We're going to give you everything in the last 30 minutes. And I think her metamorphosis and just mm. the the makeup on that, the skin peeling off was so, so great. Mm. Uh, also, I wanted to touch. Yep. Touch on the mirror gag that was used in, in the movie. That was accomplished using mercury. They drained the, the material from an onset hydraulic dollies and used it for the bit where the character dips her fingers and hand it to, uh, hand it to the reflective pool. Uh, in November 2012, Carpenter revealed that he created, uh, the eerie drink sequence in Prince of Darkness that features a shadowy figure emerging from a church doorway. Carpenter first shot the action of the figure played by Jesse Ferguson with a video camera and then re-photographed it on a television set in order to give the image a peculiar dis- uh, dislocated feeling that appeared as if it was uh, being filmed live. But I think outside of Kelly's makeup, I don't really think anything really stands out to me in terms of the practical effects as opposed to when we were talking about like society and they live. Uh, Kurt, what do you think? Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I agree. I 100% agree. I, I think that that's the standard. That's the one thing that anybody seeing this for uh, Jack, I, I don't know if you'll echo this. Um, we'll, we'll say and, and, and say that that's the, the thing that stands out. Um, I, I love the idea, and I, you can see that it's clearly just projection, but the, the tube. I, I, what did they say the tube was made out of that, that Satan's being held in? Is that. Uh, it was a hydraulic. Mercury, mercury. I yes. think it's plutonium. Mercury. Oh no, no, no! That I that I don't have in my notes. No. No. I think it's plutonium. I'm just going to bring one thing up here. So when 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 um, the Asian student uh, whose name is Lisa, when she gets possessed and she's typing on the 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 keyboard and she's translating when she's now possessed by Satan onto the the screen, the thing and it says. Um, uh, I will be free. Uh, your plutonium will no longer hold me or something along those lines, whatever that may be. And, and again, let's, let's say figuratively, that is what the tube is made out of. It's, it's a very cool looking practical prop. And I think it's actually underutilized. And, and I only say this because the fact that that first opening, not even opening scene, the first scene when we walk into that basement and you see the green, again, substance mm-hmm. kind of swirling around, clearly again it's just a projection it's not actually anything like light being in the water and such i think it's underutilized and, and there was there was something there that they could have really ran with and not, not it exploding or anything but i feel like it's a missed opportunity that's that's the one thing i want to echo about that is i feel like that's a missed opportunity in terms of of bringing out that like physical horror the same yeah way i agree i also character. wanted to add yeah. um pretty much tied and i'm going to mention this when we talk about our best kill is uh windham during that that uh pray for death message i think the effects in that Mm -hmm. scene were were incredible as well but jack what do you got yeah uh yeah i also wanted to touch a little bit on the cinematography in general because i didn't know where else to but all the white angle shots were really sick uh i it took me a little while to notice those once i did i was like oh wow uh they really add to the uh 
to the whole distortion feel of the movie. But where was yeah, the one the, that stood out to you? I, I'm really the, interested. To hear the, the the first it was it was just the out the exterior shot of the church, like right before they go yeah. in it, because I think that was the first one of the movie too, mm-hmm. and I could just instantly tell I was like, oh okay. Um, but no, the Kelly stuff was great. Uh, all the bug, the bug, bug practical effects. Same here. I I liked them, but also I they they just kind of felt a little out of place. Like I don't, they just kept popping up. It was <laughs> I, I don't know. It, it it was just a weird transition. Like oh yeah, we need something to like accompany this. Add some bugs or yeah. whatever. But uh, like like you guys said, there wasn't a whole lot of practical effects in this movie. It's more of a, more of a mind. Yeah, I agree. Anything for sure. Just going back to that wide angle shot, the, the use of the wide angle, um, the church one caught my, my attention, like you, Jack, when they first go into that basement. And again, this goes back to exactly what I was saying with the tube that Satan's contained in, or the liquid is contained in. Um, they use a carpenter uses that wide angle shot in that approach where you see the candles all on the one side of it, as well as all the equipment, man, what, what an excellent, excellent shot. Because again, it's, it's almost like echoing that, that idea Mm -hmm. of like claustrophobia and like discomfort that the basement's meant to have while they go and approach this thing that they don't know what it is. Right. So again, a a very, very interesting um, uh, take. And and I obviously I love Carpenter's work and so on and so forth, but I think that that's like one of those shots the, the shot in the movie, at least for me, where it uses that wide angle, also in regards with this, the, the practical effects. And it's just that one piece that's, again, as I said, swirling around. But it and I'm, cool, I'm going to really say before we move on to our um, sleepover Voorhees section, I'm going to guess that next month for the thing, we're going to have a little bit more to say about the practical effects. Just, just, just a little bit, just a little bit more. Oh. Um, so yeah, for me, as we move over to our, uh, to sleepover with Voorhees, my best kill, I, for me, it's Wyndham. I think it, I think that, that pray for death message and the, be- I feel like it's such a great use of practical effects, the use of the bugs. I think that's probably my best, my favorite kill. Um, my worst kill before I move on to Jack, um, I'm going to quote Jack. Uh, poor man's j- po- No, don't you dip. Di- um, All right, I didn't finish it. Go for it. Go for it. Jack is going to say it. That is my worst kill. Jack, take it away. Okay, well, I guess I'll go ahead and spoil because your worst kill <laughs> is actually my favorite kill from the movie, and that is Alice Cooper killing great value Jerry Lewis in yep. the stairwell with a bicycle. So, oh, yep. what about your yep. worst? Oh, my, my worst... Um, Turk Blocker's death was so underwhelming. They had such good buildup with Susan and just that whole cat and mouse chase through the basement, and it just leads to a neck snap. Like that, that, that just made me really upset because I was, I was hook line, and then they just completely <laughs> let me go with the sinkers. So, I agree. Yeah. I agree. That's my my yeah, least I, I, favorite. I, 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 yeah. Go ahead, Jack. No, no, that yeah, I was. I was <laughs> That was my least favorite because, like you said, the buildup for it was so suspenseful. Um, and my thought process, this is right after, and correct me if I'm wrong here, this is right after, uh, is it Lomax or Mullins is the one that gets stabbed like 17 times with the, the garden yes, shears. I believe so. Yeah. It's, is it I Mullins? believe so, yeah. It's one, it's one I of think, the two. I think it's, I think it's Mullins. 
So that had just happened prior to that. And then that's when maybe five to 10 minutes later, the cat and the mouse happens in the, in the staircase and in the basement with Susan, my, the, 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 the shears where he gets stabbed the 14 or 15 or 16 times is my favorite one. But the payoff for the Susan knife breaking one is very anticlimactic. And it was like, Oh, Oh, that's it. Oh, well, I mean, all right. Well, that was kind of sucks. Uh, but I got to give a shout out and, and Dave, I'm going to echo what you said there. Uh, the Alice Cooper, uh, Boy, man's Jerry Lewis, <laughs> Alex Cooper with, with the bicycle, uh, bravo, bravo. And again, a great use of practical effects. I think you guys might've read this in the notes. Uh, Cooper allowed one of his props from his mm-hmm. musical yep. tours to be used for that scene. Yeah. He's like, bravo. Like, again, this is the kind of stuff I love reading about and finding out after watching. So let me, uh, let me ask like you, that, right? So go ahead, go ahead. And, and also, Oh, I was I was gonna say also the lead up with the uh, the pigeon nailed on the cross before yeah. he gets stabbed like that 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 just is an eerie thing to see another thing in the Exorcist that they did that just like even if you're not like even if you're not the most religious person you can still see that and just kind of go like oh, and jeez be- so at first I thought it was a cat I'll be honest when I was watching it again, yeah like, my eyes were just kind of tricking me and I was like. Jesus Christ, they, they fucking crucified a cat. And I was like, oh my. And then like as it gets closer, we see that it's just a pigeon. I was like, oh, okay, that's still pretty gruesome, but like not as bad as I had thought it would be. No, yeah, uh, I agree. I was going to ask, uh, what is the best use of Alice Cooper in the 80s? Is it this movie or is it him uh, with the song from Jason Lives, Man Behind the Mask? Uh, I'll go with this, and I only say that because Jason. Oh, yes, we talked about this the other day. Oh, I rewatch. I, I rewatched it. <laughs> I re- uh, literally on Friday the Thirteenth. I I went through the first nine, and I watched Jason. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I oh, so I wow. went from home that day, so I just ran through the first nine, and I'm sitting there and I'm watching six, and I love Holy. it so much, and I'm like, man, my 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 boy Kurt, man. I I, I I know I know when Jack gets there, he won't let me down. I, I I can't imagine not not being no, Jack's favor no. with with his love for satire. Yeah, I think so. I think that's a bold statement. We'll, we've got it here on our audio recording. When yes, we get I, to the whole Friday the Thirteenth series, Jack, yeah, I think that's going to be. I think that's going to be your favorite number six. So, come, quote Dave. I, I will. I will say it's certainly. This is certainly my favorite thing Alice Cooper did in the eighties. Yeah. But if we're talking all time. Can't leave out Wayne's World. So can can oh, I yeah. can I make a confession on this podcast yeah. for the world to hear? I've never seen Wayne's World. Oh no! Wow! Oh, I thought I thought you were saying you don't like it. I ha- I know more, I have to get to it. Uh, but yeah, let's finish <laughs> up with one good scare where we look at some final thoughts on the film. Um, I I think we kind of echoed the same sentiments. Like we don't think this is one of Carpenter's best films, but I think it's still a very entertaining film where you can sit. Put it in, watch it with friends, and not be worried that they're going to run away like my wife did within the mouth of madness. I think this is a a much easier easier film to digest per se. Jack, what do you think? Yeah, yeah, I uh, I, I completely agree. I think uh, for my first time, it was it was certainly unlike something I had seen from Carpenter yet. Uh, again, it's the weakest that I've seen of him so far, but. When those things that are good about the movie are going at it, such as the score or Donald Pleasance, that's when the movie is really at its best. But there are just some elements like the uh, the, mul- the multiple characters and the 
the, the continuous information cramming in the first 20 minutes uh, accompanied by the 10 minutes worth of opening credits. So, but no, I really enjoyed it. And uh, again, it's just showing me that I got to dive more into uh, John Carpenter, which I'm really excited to get back Absolutely. into next month. Kurt. That's for sure. Uh, this movie, as I, as I mentioned, has so many redeeming qualities. I'm a, I'm a big science nut. I love the, uh, the discussions on theoretical physics and quantum mechanics and so on and so forth. The standout, I was a laugh out loud, funny moment for me, but the, the, the big statement that it's trying to make, and I'm just going to, I'm actually going to quote this from real quick, uh, from the Wikipedia in the mid portion of the movie, the team also learns that Jesus Christ was in fact a space traveler <laughs> who, who was executed for heresy after trying to warn people of Earth about the vessel in which Satan was trapped. Okay, so <laughs> amidst all of the quantum physics and the mechanics and then the religious side of it, clearly that statement alone is bound to piss off a few people in the Catholic Church. Hey, whatever. We're here for another discussion when that episode happens. Um, it has the makings to be a truly great film. Now, I think that we we fast forwarded 35 years. This uh, is ripe for a remake. I'm going to be the guy to say it. I and David, we need I to could, be the guys to write this. I think I could thing. be down for that. Let's do it, man. Dude, there are so many themes and, and topics of discussion in this that are like ripe for a remake. Um, it's not a, it doesn't, I don't want it to be a carbon copy of what we've watched, but if we take that idea of like mm -hmm. the physical horror and like Satan essentially being encapsulated and, and again, turning it into a cross between a physical horror mixed with like a metaphysical, you know, science fiction movie, fuck man. Like there's just so many good parts to this. And again, this goes back to the discussion with, with, um, Pleasance and, uh, and or sorry, priest, pardon me. And professor Howard is like, it's those types of conversations, uh, even uh, outside of this medium, that like really grab my interest and grab my attention. And like, I think that this is this is such a good movie at its core. And although its execution is is kind of flawed and pretty sloppy at times, man, there there's a lot here to work with. And, and I, I love to see I something. I second the remake aspect. I feel like A twenty four and Neon could eat this up if you get the right filmmaker behind it. Like, oh god. I, I think oh, there's something yeah. there. I also wanted to ask a, a question that uh, I guess it really had no place for it uh, outside of this. Were you hoping for more than Satan's arm? <laughs> oh, <laughs> yes. Uh, although Kelly's transformation yeah. was fucking cool. When we, I think we can all agree to that. I wanted more than that only because in like even let's say movies along the lines yeah, of like legend with tom cruise um we get this embodiment of satan that's very like stereotypical horns big red so on and so forth again whether it be right for a remake or, or even just kind of going off of this like it's the tip mm. of the iceberg literally the fingertips of the iceberg and like i wanted more i wanted more out of that right so yeah i mean there's a lot left on the table and, and as you said you know if there's some filmmaker waiting in the wings, we can absolutely. Use it Jack, what do you think? Uh, yeah, I mean, on one hand, I'm one of those guys who like, I mean, many of my favorite horror movies, the whole idea behind the horror is yeah. like the less you see, the scarier. Jaws, Alien. Um, and even to a similar thing, I mean, The Exorcist pretty much does the same thing. Where it's like you don't really see 
the devil, but you just like see its capabilities. So I'm not too upset with how we saw, but again, I do think that if a remake were to happen, I think that you could definitely have. Some yeah, I was going to bring up Rosemary's children. Baby, where you actually never see the titular ca- the titu- titular character in the entire movie. So that's a, per- a perfect example. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I do have some little facts about the movie that I wanted to finish up with just to see what you, if you guys have heard of this. Um, this is John Carpenter's first film he made independently since Escape from New York. Uh, not only because of the box office failure of, of Big Trouble in Little China, but also his frustration with working with big studios. Uh, makes total sense. Uh, the parts played by Donald Pleasant's Victor Wong and Dennis Dune were written specifically for them by Carpenter due to his enjoyable, enjoyable prior collaborations with them. Next up, uh, John Carpenter states that he set out to make a film that was atmospheric and dreadful. At the time, he was noticing a lot of der- derivative horror films and wanted to try something new involving quantum mechanics and religion. Uh, I can see it. It's not actually his fault. Uh, we discussed on the Friday the 13th podcast that we were on last, Carter and I were on last week that people should not call Halloween the first slasher film because it's not a slasher film at all. Um, Friday the 13th would probably be guilty of the fir- being the first slasher. So I can kind of see why he wanted to go in a different direction here. Uh, although the thing, I think he does, he effectively does this better with the thing than he does with Prince of Darkness. Um, Next up, Donald Pleasant wasn't keen on driving. This is more of a fun, funny, fun fact. Uh, he wasn't keen on driving and got lost once coming to the set, which caused him to be late on his first day of shoot. The incident led to having other people drive him <laughs> around. Uh, I got to take him back home to the Chate Mamont one day, says Peter Jason. And I'm telling you, it was the most fun I ever had. He was scared to death the whole way. And kind of piggybacking on what Kurt said. And his con- and his confirmation of, uh, of of his love with Alice Cooper. Alice Cooper has uh, has gone on record and saying he believes this film is ripe for a sequel, claiming he wants to see more of, uh, ah. more than just the anti God's hand, but the whole thing. Uh, this is more for me and Kurt. Do you want to know where John Carpenter and Alice Cooper first met, do, or do you know where do he? Do I want to know where they met? first met? WrestleMania, yes. WrestleMania two. The the performer shared his desire to be in a horror film. Carpenter said, "Okay, if the film, <laughs> if he could only use Carpenter's impaling bag that you, me- you mentioned before, uh, yeah, that was pretty awesome." As soon as I saw it, I'm like, "Of course, it's WrestleMania. Why wouldn't it be?" <laughs> that is actually the same. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, because Carpenter was at the same WrestleMania with Cooper and with Hot Rod, and Hot Rod was the main event. That was the Mr. With, T. Um, yep. Yep. Mr. T, with Mr. T, yeah, yeah. Jack, yeah. fun fact: we're we're wrestling nerds. In case you haven't realized, it, just, so. just, oh, you really? would have never guessed, wow. right? <laughs> and and, never and then the last ever. the last so, fact is uh, this actually has a high body count, a body count of eleven, uh, which is I think outside of the thing, probably his highest body count. If I can think, if I'm thinking, correct, I think so. Yeah, 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 yeah. So. yeah. Yes, guys, go for I, it. I have one last fun fact. And I don't think this is anything that you guys uh, would have found on the internet. If you go to my top five film dive Instagram post and you look at the fight sequence between Keith David and Roddy Roddy Piper, the same alley and the same garbage Shut can up. where they fight and they live <laughs> is the same opening fucking sequence street alleyway that Alice Cooper 
and all the schizophrenic homeless people start walking down. Quote me now when the episode ends, go look at it. And it is, if you go side by side on one part of your screen and on your cell phone, it's the same goddamn alley in Los Angeles. I would have marked the fuck mm-hmm. out if we got that shot okay. and Piper and <laughs> Piper and Keith David are still fighting while the opening credits of Prince of Darkness are playing. <laughs> I, that's it. I, they, this would have been top. This would have topped Halloween as the best Carpenter film if they if he would have pulled yep. that. Ever, oh, but no, that's a great ever. pull. It, it, so. it reminds me of the, of the not related to uh, John Carpenter at all. But I, I recently just finished Downton Abbey, and I found out that the uh-huh. mansion used in Downton Abbey is the same mansion used in Eyes Wide Shut during the. D- during the when, during the during during the party where Tom Cruise first goes at the beginning of the movie, I was like, "Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That one. yeah. Oh, yeah." Okay. So I'm oh, like, yeah, the "Holy one. shit!" Yeah. Uh, so yeah, you you never know what what's in what movie and show. Uh, but that's a great way to end this month. This is a great dive, guys. Uh, next month we're going to continue our look at Jock Carpenter with. I'm going to say this is probably going to be our most popular in terms of everyone knows what movie this is, uh, but it deserves. It, I can say it's it, it's the only movie of the roster this year that I've and previously I think seen. It is, it is so, in my top yeah. two John Carpenter films. Uh, I think this movie is close to a masterpiece. It may be a masterpiece. We'll decide that next, decipher that next month. Uh, but yeah, we're going to be covering the thing on its 40th anniversary, which is, yeah. We're old. When you say uh, John Carpenter's other masterpiece, you're referring to Ghosts of Mars, right? Yeah. Yeah. Listen, or listen, listen, we're never going to cover one? vampires on here, but I kind of have a sweet spot for vampires because Cher. And I think this correlates with my love for Twin Peaks. And I know that Cheryl Lee is in vampires. And I'm like, yo, like, let's go. Laura Palmer lives somehow. <laughs> yes Laura Palmer. forever in my heart i adore laura palmer uh our buddy our buddy jack is almost there he's gonna take the dive and this is related to the 80s he is going to he is gonna take the dive into twin peaks and i can't wait for him to come on here and i actually give a little play-by-play on what he thinks about i think he's gonna love it so before we finish my prediction if he starts in the next month my prediction on twin peaks is this yeah jack's gonna love season one because it's not as trippy yeah we get the red room, we get and all that. When we get to season two, forget it. Jack's done. Yeah. Yep, yep. The wheels fall off. Yeah, yeah. In a good way. In a great, great way, Jack. Great. Right. <laughs> and then I think season, season, three season three is three? probably for me. It's one of the weirdest, but one of the best seasons of television I've ever seen. Also, episode eight, and I think Kurt may know exactly what episode I'm talking about. Episode eight in season three is probably the greatest thing david lynch has ever filmed it is it is minimal and i love mulholland drive i love blue velvet but when you get to season eight there is so much quote i mean i guess you can call it exposition to the history of what led to the events of twin peaks but he does it it it, there's no dialogue it is all score there is i would say the dialogue ends probably like 15 minutes into the episode and then it just becomes this acid trip like it, 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 it's something. It's uh, it's gonna challenge you. But I think you definitely, if anyone's up for the challenge, I think it's you. Yeah, I'm up for the challenge. Yeah, I've, I've said it once, and I'll say it again. Let's go. Buckle up, mother. All right, so Jack, do you want to plug anything before we go? 
Yeah, uh, season three of the League of Cinephiles is coming yes. soon. Be sure to peep that on YouTube, uh, uh, and as well as the Critics Circle on Instagram. Yes, that all three of us are members of. Absolutely. Top five film dive. New episodes dropping, guys. We got an episode coming out next week, um, uh, relating to the release of Top Gun, and uh, that's going to be a, a banger of an episode. And yeah, buddy, guys, I look forward to this so much. Thank you so much for being patient with me, ladies and gentlemen. Listen, I'm about to get married, so this was very exciting to be able to do Woo-hoo! with my two boys here, uh, right before I take the dive into marriage. And I greatly I'm, appreciate it. I I'm so three years into the dive. So it's well worth it. Congratulations, my friend. Yeah. yeah. And then you can follow you can Thank follow you, you can follow Chop Talk at Chop Talk <laughs> underscore horror on Instagram. You can follow me on Real Talk Inc. As well. You can follow my work on RealTalking.com, Ron Tomatoes, all that fun stuff, and be on the lookout for next month's podcast when we talk about the thing. Until then, see you at the movies, kids. <laughs> <laughs>